Father, we thank you for today, Lord. Thank you for this beautiful day, Lord, where we can uh, once again worship you, glorify you, get together and fellowship, Lord, break bread together. And we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to see you for who you really are, Lord, to see your glory as Moses on that mountain, Lord. Then he wanted more. He said, show me your glory. And I just pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself more and more to us, that we would comprehend the incomprehensible, Lord, that we would know your love, the height, the breadth, the depth, the length, just the awesomeness of who you are, your love for us, that we would feel it in a tangible way, Lord, this morning, and that you would um, just help us to see you in your word, that your word would penetrate our hearts today, that it would encourage us, that it would uplift us, that it would rebuke us even and correct us, Lord, in areas where we need that. And uh, may it help us, Lord, to look to you, to set our minds on things above and not be overly focused on things of this world, Lord. So forgive us, cleanse us, sanctify us, and bless this message in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of today's teaching is Winning the Battle Against the Flesh. Winning the Battle Against the Flesh. And God's word, as we know, it's alive and it's active That word active in the New Testament means effective, effectual. It's more relevant than the morning newspaper. 2,000 years later, we're reading a Bible, and it speaks directly to your heart, directly to your mind. God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows our struggles. He knows our battles. He knows our enemies. He knows that the world and the flesh and the devil is constantly bombarding our hearts and our minds on a daily basis. And he gives us the answers in his word. Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. You ever heard that acronym before? This is his word. This is his roadmap. This is what we need in our lives to feed our souls on a daily basis. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. The word of God is living and active. That word active is effective effectual, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He sees everything. He knows everything. Everything is laid bare before him. Just let that sink in. Sometimes Maybe I've shared this before. I think it was a long time ago I shared this. When I'm on the freeway, I look at cars coming in the opposite direction, and I just think, God knows what they're thinking right now. God knows what they're saying right now. Next car, God knows what they're thinking right now. He knows what, and I just sit there. If I'm driving from California to here, that's 13 hours, and I'm going, how does he know all of their thoughts? And that's just the cars on this freeway, and there's thousands of freeways in our nation and around the world. How many more, and how many more people, like, how does God know everything how does he know our thoughts and the more you just you know you don't have to do that what i'm telling you with that but just that thought of knowing how vast how awesome how great the knowledge of god it's incomprehensible it should cause you to go wow and another way you can kind of do this is just look at the stars right at night think of the universe think of the vastness of the the galaxies and Where does the universe end? Is there like a brick wall? Is there a wall somewhere? Then what's on the other side of that wall? Like where does this all end? The vastness, the greatness, the majesty of God. And then there's us. 
these little frail worms, these little people that think we know it all at times. And Psalm 103 verse 14 says, he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. He's patient with us. He's compassionate towards us. He's kind to us. He hasn't dealt with us according to our sins. He hasn't rewarded us according to our iniquities. Psalm 103 verse 10. We deserve death. He gives us life. We deserve judgment. He gives us blessing. We deserve hell. He gives us heaven all through the sacrifice of his son. So we should all be able to say those words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Written by John Newton, a slave trader, a man who when he was young, his mom wanted him to be a preacher and a minister. And then he got involved in the slave trade and he was more profane than all his contemporaries and those around him. He almost starved to death on the ship. He was beaten because of how vulgar he was and how he came against the captains of his ship and he was just this wretched man and then he met Christ. And he said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And that's really all of us. Every single believer, we're all wretches apart from Christ and his grace. We were once lost living in sin, living in the flesh, yet we've been pulled out of the muck and the mire. We've been saved, we've been redeemed, we've been raised up, seated in heavenly places with Christ. That's the reality of your life and my life in Jesus. Saved, secure, forgiven, cleansed. And we need to preach this good news to ourselves every day. We need to be reminded of the good news of who we are in Jesus every day. You've probably heard John 3:16 how many times in your life? Hundreds, thousands. And yet, as I was putting together this message, I was just saying it again this morning, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But I wanted to make it more personal. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that for us who believe, but for me. He gave his son for me so that when I believe, I have forgiveness of sins. It's what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. He says, he loved me and he gave himself for me. There's a lot of texts in the New Testament about how he died for us. He gave his life for us. He gave his life for the whole world. But sometimes we need to personalize it to feel the, the weight of it towards you personally. Paul says, he loved me, he gave himself for me. So that if you were the only person that was on planet earth, we believe that God would still send his son to die for you. That's the love that he has for us individually. So we have that good news, but we also have what scripture calls and tells us the reality of the situation that we're in. This is the reality of the situation that we're in, war. You're in a battle. You're in war. Some people just tell you the one side of the coin. God loves you. Jesus died for you. You're saved. You're secure. You're cleansed. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. That's it. Pack up your bags. Go home. There's another side to the coin. You're in a battle. You're in a spiritual battle for your souls. You are in a war, a raging, intense, fierce, severe battle. The scripture doesn't sugarcoat this doesn't conceal it, doesn't dumb it down. It speaks directly, clearly, consistently, emphatically. You are in a battle. And what battle is that? 
It's the battle against the flesh. Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 2.11. But brethren, beloved, I urge you as foreigners and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Fleshly lusts on a daily basis rage war against your soul. Romans 8.13 and 14. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. If by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. 1 Corinthians 9.27 But I discipline my body. I beat down my body. I bruise my body. I buffet my body. I like beat down there. I beat down my body, my flesh, that sinful nature, Paul says. I beat it down. I make it my slave lest after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. If I don't beat down my body, I will be disqualified. If I don't stay in this fight, I will be disqualified. I will be a docamos. I will fail the test. I'll be cut off from Christ. Jesus puts it this way, Matthew 5, 29 and 30. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. Throw it from you. It's better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He goes on to say, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. It's better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. This is radical, right? It should be normal in the Christian life, but it's radical to many people. Clear, emphatic, direct in regards to our sinful desires our flesh the sinful nature that's within all of us cut it off tear it out put it to death beat it down abstain crucify all these active verbs of how we are to deal with our sinful nature our flesh it's been said self is the worst enemy a Christian has yourself your sinful nature within you. And sometimes we can say, yeah, but the devil, you know, the devil made me do this or the devil's tempting me or the devil, yeah, he's firing flaming missiles at you. Yes, he's scheming. Yes, he's plotting. Yes, he's planning. Yes, he's trying to trip you up. Yes, the world is trying to squeeze you into its mold constantly, but your flesh is constantly lurking within. It's always there. You can resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Your, your sinful nature is there. It's part of you. Now, with that, it wants to show itself up in different ways in your life. Lust, greed, strife, jealousy, drunkenness, anger, envy, idolatry. The list goes on and on. This is just a few of them. Not one saint is immune to these temptations. You read back throughout all church history. You read about the Apostle Paul and Peter and all these mighty saints. They've all dealt with the flesh. The question for today is how do we win the daily battle against the flesh? How do we do it? And scripture gives us several different ways. And as we looked at, at last time in the book of Colossians, Paul gives us ways that we don't deal with the flesh. He gives us ways that don't have any effective way of conquering the flesh in our lives. He talked about new moons. He talked about festivals. He talked about these men that were puffed up in pride, 
I looked at Martin Luther again, this Catholic monk who would, said he would sleep on the ground without a pillow, he'd flagellate himself, say all these penances, all these Hail Marys. He wanted to do all these works to gain favor from God. It didn't work. Submitting yourself to the dietary laws of the Old Testament, self-abasement, Paul says in Colossians 3, a reverence, an appearance of reverence, he says it doesn't work. If you're battling against the flesh with man-made rules, it will never work. You ever been in a water fight in your yard and someone grabs the hose? Maybe you got the super soaker and then they go grab the hose and they come after you. I've seen that done to my kids. I think Jake d actually did that to my kids. They're sitting there with their 99 cent little squirt guns. I'm going to get you, uncle. And it's like, here's the hose. Psh, just blows them away. And I, th I think of that with the flesh. We got little 99 cent squirt guns trying to, trying to beat down the flesh. And we're like, yeah, I'm going to get you. And that's like man-made rules. That's like traditions of men. That's like Colossians chapter 3 with the false teachers. They're coming into Colossae and saying, here you go. Look at these cool guns. And Paul's like, that doesn't do anything. That has no value against the flesh. You need a hose. You need a fire hose. You need to be able to extinguish the flesh completely. Colossians chapter 2, 23. If you'll turn there with me. Colossians chapter 2. I, perhaps I said Colossians 3 just a minute ago. Colossians 2 is where we see these false teachers with their false traditions of men, commandments of men. So we're going to read chapter 2, verse 23, and then we're just going to look at four verses in Colossians chapter 3 today. Colossians 2, 23, Paul says, These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion, in self-abasement, in severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. I quoted last week a preacher by the name of McLaren who said, there is only one thing that will put the collar on the neck of the animal within us, and that is the power of the indwelling Christ. So in chapter 3, as Paul transitions from these false teachers with the mechanisms that they're using to bring these Colossians in subjection to the law, to show them a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, Paul now tells us in these four verses that we're looking at today, this is the true way. This is the key to overcoming the flesh in your life. Now there's many paradoxes in the Christian life. A paradox is an apparent contradiction where we say, how can it be both? Like we're saved. The Bible says over and over again, you've been saved. When you believed, you were saved. But then it says we're being saved, and then it talks about a final salvation. So we were saved, but we are awaiting a final salvation. We haven't reached that final salvation yet. It's both and. Scripture teaches that sin has been dealt with on the cross decisively. Jesus obliterated the flesh. He, he obliterated sin on the cross, yet 
We're still fighting sin. We're still battling against the flesh. And we won't have ultimate freedom until that final day. And we could go on and on with this. We've been raised, yet we're, we're awaiting a final resurrection. We call it the already and the not yet. Already, yet not yet. The war has been won, yet the battle rages. So how do those come together? Jesus won the war, yet we battle daily. David Brionis, in his article titled Already, Not Yet, puts it this way, quote, We already possess every spiritual blessing in Christ. But he goes on to say, But we do not experience the fullness of these blessings yet. In one sense, we're already adopted, we're redeemed, we're sanctified, we're saved. In another, these experiences are not fully ours. He goes on to give a practical example and illustration that I thought is pretty fitting. He says, My wife and I have been married for 16 years but I can remember our engagement like it was yesterday. It was an unnecessarily long engagement, a year and seven days to be precise, yet I have no one to blame but myself. The ring burned a hole in my pocket. Some of you can relate to that, maybe. I can. He goes on to say, I hastily popped the question before meeting my father-in-law's demands. These were the demands. College degrees in hand, full-time jobs, and $5,000 in the bank so it meant a longer engagement I was hastily or I was hasty because we knew we wanted to spend the rest of our lives together but once the excitement of getting engaged wore off I grew increasingly increasingly impatient it felt as if we were already married with her ring symbolizing that long-term commitment the reality symbolized by the ring however was not yet a present reality it was a certain hope in the all too distant future so we have this hope that one day the flesh will be done away with but until then it's still there still lurking we're still fighting we're still battling we still have the temptations of sin and I can relate to what he's saying when it was like man I want to get married I'm thankful my father-in-law didn't say I have to have five thousand dollars in the bank had a couple hundred Probably would have been a four-year engagement with Leah. But I had to get a couple jobs for that. Now, earlier in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, look what Paul told the church. Colossians 2, 11. He says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's removed your sin. He circumcised your heart. He's given you a new redeemed heart. He removed the body of the flesh. Okay, wait, he removed the flesh? Wait, he removes, he took sin away? All my sin is on him, I'm forgiven, I'm cleansed? But then Paul goes on in chapter three to tell us all the ways in which we can now conquer the flesh. Verses one and two, he talks about seeking things above of chapter three. Verse five, he says, put to death the deeds of the body. Put to death the flesh, consider it dead. Verse 8 of chapter 3, put the flesh aside. Verse 9, lay aside the old man. Verse 10, put on the new man. Put on a new heart. Verse 12, put on love, and so on and so forth. The already, yet, not yet. Sanctified, cleansed, yet as Jude says, 
hating the garment polluted by the flesh. That's us. We hate the garment polluted by the flesh. We hate the flesh. We hate sin. We realize the struggle that we're in until that final day. So Paul gives us some help. Chapter 3, these first four verses. I want to give you three ways today that we can win the battle against the flesh from these four verses. And I'm going to pose these in three different questions for us to consider. First question I want to talk about today as we look at these three questions with the time remaining is whose life are you living? Question number one, whose life are you living? Are you living your own life? Are you living someone else's life? Are you living the life the world wants you to live? Or are you living the life governed by Jesus Christ? Union with Christ, being united to Christ, one with Christ, is at the heart of this letter to the Colossian church. It's all throughout this letter. If you have time, maybe later today, go and count all the in hymns in this letter, all the through hymns, the by him, with him. They're all over, almost every other verse. I think in chapter one, it's all throughout. By him, all things were created. Having been created by him, he is before all things. In him, all things are created. He is the head of the body. He is the beginning. He himself, him, him, he. It's all about Christ and what we have in him through him. And then we see that again in Colossians 3, 1. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. The key to winning the battle against the flesh, here's the key. You need to realize you're not your own. You're not your own. The moment you said yes to Jesus Christ and believed in him, you said, whether you know it or not, my life is not my own. Look at verse 3. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died. You say, no, I haven't died. I'm living. No, what's died? Your old self, your old man, your old sinful nature, the old you, the one that said, my way, my wants, my desires. Paul says, that's dead. Your life is now Christ's life. That's not you anymore. Your life is hidden with Christ. You've been crucified. The old you. You now say his way, his wants, his desires. You now say, I have desires, I have wants, I have feelings, but I subject them to Christ. That's how a Christian should talk. I've died with him, I was buried with him, I've been raised up with him. I'm united with Jesus Christ. He lived a sinless life, I'm pursuing a sinless life through Christ who lives in me. Romans 6, 6 and verse 7 puts it this way. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin. So the paradox is, oh, the old man's dead. Well, dead man don't sin. Oh, so my old man's dead, so therefore I'm the flesh. The flesh is dead. I, I, what am I battling then? 
And the dead man can come off the cross. The dead man can walk, so to speak. The dead man is still tempting you, and you have to say, no, get back on the cross. You've been crucified. You are, I am dead to you. I, I am no longer living in sin. That's not who I am anymore. It was Frank Sinatra who sang the song My Way. Perhaps you've heard it. It was a little before my time. It was, I think, l- written later in his life as his career was coming to an end, and he said, I did things my way. Here's the first part of the song. It goes, and now the end is here. And so I face that final curtain. My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I traveled each and every highway, and more, much more, I did it my way. I did it my way. That's not how the Christian should talk. We don't do things our way. It's not my way. It shouldn't be your way. It's Christ's way. It's he's Lord of my life. He's master. He's in charge. We want to say at the end of our lives, I did it his way. We want to say at the end of our lives, I wanted to do it my way. I had the desire to do this and that my way, but I crucified my flesh. I put it to death. I lived for him. I had selfish tendencies, but I lived selflessly like Christ. I pursued him. I have a clean conscience And as Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who who have loved his appearing. I fought the good fight. It is a fight. It is a battle. There's a tension going on. The flesh, the spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. Galatians 5, the spirit and the flesh are in opposition to one another. So walk in the spirit so you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's a daily command. It's a continual command to walk in the spirit. And your flesh hates it. Your flesh doesn't want to. You go to read the word, you go to pray, you go to fellowship, you go to wake up to come to church, and the flesh is, no, no, you don't need to go. You're going to be okay. You don't need to be in fellowship. Oh, just skip a day. And it just starts whispering these things to you. A constant battle that we're in. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. He told the Corinthian church, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? 1 Corinthians 6.15. He goes on to say, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. That's the key to conquering the flesh. Realizing your Christ, realizing the indwelling power of, and grace of Jesus Christ is within you. You're not your own, you're his. Your body's his, your mind is his, your heart is his, your life is his, and you've been purchased with his blood. Now live your life for him. It can be summed up in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ living through me. Christ governing my life. He's master. Sin isn't in control. Sin isn't master. Christ is master. I live in and through me and through him. When you look at Aaron in the Old Testament, Exodus 28, 36, we're told in that verse that God directed that Aaron, when he go in 
the Holy of Holies to minister to the Lord and to offer to the Lord. God said, you are to put a gold banner on your head. And on that gold plate, it is to be engraved, holy to the Lord. So every time he went in there, holy to the Lord, written across his forehead. And what happened if you were not living a life, a life holy to the Lord? What happened if you offered strange fire in the Holy of Holies? What happened if you lived for yourself and did it your way? God would strike you down, and he did. Nadab and Abihu, I believe it was, dead right on the spot. Holy to the Lord, a priest set apart for God, God's man carrying out God's will for God's glory. The scripture says that you are a kingdom of priests unto God. 1 Peter 2.9, Revelation 1.6. That's how you need to think of yourself. Holy to the Lord. That's your life. Holy to God. Set apart from God. Different from the world. Different from those who are living for themselves. Different from those who are saying, I'm doing things my way. No, I'm doing things God's way. He's in control of my life. You conquer the flesh by living out your life through Christ who's living in you. His power, his strength, his grace, all to his glory. So it says in Colossians 3.18 or 3.17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever you do, it's all through his glory. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, it's all for him. It's all for his glory. Question number two. In winning the battle against the flesh, we have to ask this question, where is our mind? Where is your mind? Set your mind on things above, verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Verse 1, keep seeking the things above. These are present, active, imperative commands. Keep seeking, continually seek, continually set your mind on things above not on things that are on the earth. When you look at the false teachers in verse 18 of chapter 2, it says that their minds were puffed up. They were fleshly. Chapter 2, verse 18, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Where's Christ in any of this? Where's Christ in Colossians chapter 2 once you begin with these false teachers? You've got new moons, festivals, Sabbaths. You've got them puffed up with pride because of angelic visions and angelic worship and all these other things. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Where is Christ in all of this? The answer is nowhere. That's the fleshly mind focused on anything but Christ. Remember Peter, Matthew 16, 22 and 23? Remember when Jesus told the disciples, I need to, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer many things. I'm, I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to die. What does Peter say to Jesus? He rebukes him. May it never be. He gets in the way. Why was that? Jesus tells us, Matthew 16, 23. He says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. Why? For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Peter, your mind's not 
seeking the things of God. Your mind, you're not setting your mind on things above. You're puffed up. You're in the flesh. Your mind's on things of man. You're not realizing I need to go to the cross to die for the sins of the world. You're, you're not getting it because your mind isn't where it should be, Peter. If your mind was where it should be, you wouldn't be getting in the way. You'd be saying, okay, Lord, if you must go, you must go. That's not what he did. Philippians 2.5, another text on where our minds should be. Let this mind be in you. You know the text. Have this attitude in yourselves, King James. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of a man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Paul says, have that mind. Have that humble mind. Be willing to let go. Be willing to be selfless. Jesus was crucified. Be willing to die for Jesus. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself. Anyone who wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Christianity 101, self-denial. Pursuing Christ, denying self. Deny self, take up your cross. Every day, crucifying your flesh. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's been done in the past. We continue to crucify the flesh till we go and meet our maker. The battle really begins in the heart and mind. That's where the battle starts. Listen to this quote by the founder of MTV. Perhaps you've heard it before. He says, we're dealing with a culture of teenage babies. They can watch TV, do their homework, and listen to music all at the same time. The strongest appeal you can make is emotional. If you can get their emotions going, make them forget their logic, you've got them. At MTV, we don't shoot for the 14-year-olds. We own them. We own them. We've, we've gone past the logic. We've gone past the intellect. We've, we've gone for their emotion, which is just another word for, we've gone for their flesh. We know exactly where to target them. When their flesh is raging, when they're pumped with their hormones, when they're young, that's where we'll go. At their flesh, at their minds, at their hearts. We don't shoot for them, we own them. The world knows this. Many, many Christians just don't grasp it. I read a book this week titled The Power of Prayer. It was written by a pastor, an army, an army chaplain during the Civil War, and he was known to uh, get up in the morning at 4 a.m. and pray for three hours. And this book was really convicting because he just he documented all these Christians throughout the last couple hundred years that were known for just praying, praying for long periods of time, praying for the lost, praying for their ministries, praying for their families and their brothers and sisters and praying that the Lord's will would be done. And essentially the book is saying, you want power? You need to pray. You want to have victory in your life? You need to pray. And it's convicting. I, I vent to Leah a little bit and I go, I, I want to pray more. You know, I want, I want to seek the Lord like these men and it's, it's so hard and it's the battle of the flesh and the spirit that we can discipline ourselves for many things in life. But when it 
comes to disciplining ourselves for the Lord, it can be so hard. Listen to what was said about this man named E.M. Bounds. It was said, quote, while on speaking engagements, he would not neglect his early morning time and prayer and cared nothing for the protests of the other occupants of his room at being awakened so early. No man could have made a more melting or made more melting appeals for lost souls and backslidden ministers than did Bounds. Tears ran down his face as he pleaded for us all in that room. What a heart. This man was, he was in prison for a year and a half because he was against slavery when many ministers weren't at the time. And so then he became an army chaplain and during the war he suffered this massive blow to his head. I don't know if it didn't go in detail, but I don't know if it was a gunshot or shrapnel or whatnot. And so he struggled with that the rest of his life, but he was a man of deep prayer. That's what it looks like to set your mind on things above. Saying, Lord, I want to get alone with you. I want to seek you. I want to be more like you. I want to go after you with everything. I want to discipline my body. I won't be content like Moses until I see your glory. I'm not content till I see more of you. I'm not content until I have more of your love, more of your power, more of your glory, more of your grace in my life. I'm not content with living out a Christianity on this level. I'm going after it, Lord. That's what it looks like to seek, to keep seeking the things above, to set your mind on Christ. And it's hard in the culture that we live. People for thousands of years of the history of this world didn't have a device in their pocket that they could at any moment pull up anything at any time. Kids today, cell phones, nine years old, and they're looking at things that kids are never meant to look at. Adults, we have so many things that we're being bombarded with. I was just talking to Leah the other day about clickbait and how everything just seems to be clickbait. They just, it's, how can we get you to click on this ad? How can we get you to click on this article? Because that means more money for them. That means more money for YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. If they can get our attention, if they can get our minds, if they can go past logic and intellect and to the emotions, they've got us. And before we know it, we've clicked on this, clicked on that, clicked on this, and two and a half hours later, where have we gone? And so it's something we all need to constantly think about, pray about, and say, Lord, give me the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians says we already have the mind of Christ, but we need to renew our minds. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What does it mean to renew? It means you've already had a new mind. You had a new mind in Christ when you came to him, but it needs to be constantly renewed. And you can't renew it if your mind is constantly in the things of this world. And I'm as guilty as it as anyone else. I go home on a Sunday after church and the kids take a nap and I'm on my phone. It's not wrong in, in and of itself. There's a lot of things online that aren't wrong in and of themselves, but they become wrong when they take center stage, when they get our eyes and our mind and our hearts off of Christ and his preeminency in our lives and seeking him as we should. And that's where Satan is subtle. See, it's not that bad. Nick, you're just looking up a weight equipment set. That's not bad. It's not sin in and of itself. If I do that for 10 hours a day, 
and I haven't prayed, I haven't read my word, haven't read the word, haven't meditated on it, Christ is being pushed off to the side. So for me, it could be weights or it could be whatever some of my hobbies are. For you, it could be something else. And we just have to say, Lord, would you help me to sanctify my mind, to set my mind on you? Looks different in our lives. Would God give us wisdom? Draw near to God, the scripture says. Draw near to him. He will draw near to you. As you listen to a sermon, when you listen to this message, if you're taking it in, that's setting your mind on things of the Lord. When you're reading his word, meditating on it, that's setting your mind on things of the Lord. When you're getting in fellowship and you're talking about the things of God, that's setting your mind on things of the Lord. And so perhaps it's more of a challenge for us in our day and age, in the 21st century America, than it has been in all human history. Yet God's patient with us. He knows our frame. He knows we're but dust, but he wants so much more for us. He doesn't want to settle at, the, at this in our Christian lives. He wants us to pursue him. He wants us to repent when we're not striving after him, setting our minds on him as we should. So just speaking from my own heart, I can start to feel guilty when I'm not praying three hours like E.M. Bounds. And I start confessing to Leah, you know, I'm not praying as I should be. And I need to turn that guilt into action. And I just need to say, Lord, here I am. This is me. This is how much time I have. Help me to pursue you. Help me to set my mind on you. Help me to realize that I'm saved, forgiven, cleansed, and loved, but that I'm pursuing more. I'm pursuing you. I want more of you, Lord. Here's the last question for today. What direction are you looking? You want to win the battle against the flesh? You need to ask yourself, what direction are you looking? The apostles Peter, James, and John, the letters in the New Testament, the churches, they were encouraging them and urging them to look to the coming of Jesus Christ. That was 2,000 years ago. They're like, let's eagerly wait for Christ. He, he, it's going to come. He's going to come soon. Let's look to Christ. Keep your eyes forward. 2,000 years ago, how much closer are we today than they were in the first century? Verse 4 of Colossians 3 says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, you also will be revealed with him in glory. We're looking to the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're looking to his second coming when we are going to be glorified in him. We're not to look back. Israel looked back. What happened to them? They looked back at Egypt. They wanted to go back to Egypt. Scripture says they were laid low in the wilderness. Lot's wife, what did she do? She looked back, turned to a pillar of salt. Demas, scripture tells us, he looked back at the things of this world and he left the apostle Paul. The rich young ruler, Jesus said, give all you have to the poor, come follow me. You want to live life to the fullest? You want an abundant life? You want to be filled with joy and blessing? Give it all up, follow me. He looked back, looked at his treasure and walked away from Christ. All throughout the scripture, we have men, we have nations like Israel who looked back. Scripture says, don't look back. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What do we mean by look back? Meditate on the things of the past. Sin, your sin in the past. 
how great things were in the past. Jesus said many will fall away. Many will look back. Many will turn back. Many will desert Christ. Here's how a Christian talks. Forgetting what lies behind. Reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3. You, you have a one-track mind. You're going forward in the Lord. You're pursuing him. You're setting your mind on him. That's the key to conquering the flesh, living Christ's life through you. So finish strong. Our citizenship is in heaven for which, from which we eagerly await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll transform your body of its humble state into conformity with the body of glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things unto himself. He knows our humble frame. He knows we're but dust, but he says, set your mind on me, seek me, and look forward to being with him in glory.